Brilliant. Hi, I'm Andy. I'm one of the leaders here. I don't know a few faces, but welcome. Um, you're very welcome to be, part, to be with us on this warm morning. Uh, uh, Steve and Bev send their apologies. They're in Bicester this morning, serving the church in Bicester, part of our wider group of churches. Uh, we're trying to help the church there over the next few weeks with um, a particular matter. And so several of us are going up over the next three or four weeks, including many of our worship leaders. So thank you, everyone who's uh, involved with that that process. My topic this morning is money. Uh, um, we're in this series, let me just start here, we're in this series called Join the Adventure. We're looking at a series of uh, aspects of what it means to become a Christian and get involved with God's adventure. You know, church is supposed to be an adventure, a people on an, on an adventure with God. It's not just a kind of service to come to. We're a people with a mission on adventure. And what does it mean for us to become part of that people? We've been looking at different aspects of that story through the life of the early church, particularly through the book of Acts. And this morning we come to money. Um, now, it struck me as I was preparing that of all the talks we do in church, this one is the one that regularly touches a nerve. I don't know how many of us like talking about money. People don't say, don't they, Let's not, don't talk about religion, politics, and your personal finance in conversation. So we're doing two of those this morning. We might get a little bit political as well, so that won't be all three. So that's the first health warning. Um, but, you know, Jesus talked an awful lot about money. Um, uh, Jesus, one, one commentator says 16 of the 38 parables are to do with money and possessions. I haven't checked all these figures, by the way. You'll see in a minute. There's a lot of numbers, and I've taken it from this particular commentator. But that's around half of Jesus' parables are to do with our stuff. Um, In the Bible, in the Gospels, 10% of the verses are about our money and our stuff and our possessions. And in uh, the Bible as a whole, this, this particular commentator reckons, there are 50 verses on faith... 50 verses on prayer, and 2,000 on money and possessions. Now, I might want to quibble with those, and I, and I, because it's 2,000, I haven't gone through and checked them all. But um, most commentators you read say the same sort of thing. It's just different, slightly different numbers, but whatever we make of the exact numbers, there is a lot that Jesus says and the Bible says about money and possessions. So we've got a bit of a problem in our culture because we don't like talking about it. And I suppose that's the first thing I want to say is it's good to talk about money. Uh, Jesus talked a lot about it. And we're going to come now to a number of reasons why Jesus did talk about money. The other thing I want to say just as we start is this is a vast subject. There are 2,000 verses on it in the Bible. And we are going to scrape the surface this morning. Any talk on money you ever have in church will scrape the surface and focus on one bit or another bit. Um, uh, So... Uh, if I don't say something that's important to you, then that's my apology up front. First, so I want to say there's seven reasons we should talk about money more in church. And first, it's a matter of personal discipleship towards spiritual maturity. If it was good enough for Jesus, it ought to be good enough for us. If Jesus talked a lot about it, we ought to too. We see a couple of examples in the, in the story of Jesus. We see... We'll come to it a little bit later. We know the, the, the fraudulent tax collector called Zacchaeus. Famous little story there. He became a follower and he immediately made things right with those he defrauded. Okay, there's something in the way Jesus presented the gospel that had an effect on Zacchaeus' money. Jesus challenged one person called the rich young ruler 
about finance to such an extent this guy's decided not to become a Christian. What's going on there? But the point is, it's, it's a bit, Jesus didn't say, oh, it's okay, we'll sort that out later. Jesus decided that, that for whatever reason, there was an issue about finance. So in, finance was an important issue for Jesus. We'll see as we look on, it touch, that our approach to money touches on generosity, love, obedience, worship, lots of really important qualities for Christians. And that's why Jesus made such a big deal of it. So in short, I think our, our, our discipleship towards maturity, being more like Jesus, in that process, talking about money, grappling with money is a really big deal. That's why we must talk about it. Secondly, it's an issue that challenges our culture of consumerism. It's no surprise to you that we live in a consumerist world. Consumerism is kind of omnipresent, isn't it, really, in, in, our, in our world. It's everywhere. You, you go to some far-flung place that you think of, and there's a Coke advert or something. You know, it's, it's McDonald's. Yeah, exactly. Um, and yet we're also increasingly, as a society, rightly concerned about sort of ethical purchase in fair trade justice, these kind of issues. We're a little bit confused in that sense. Um, my parents worked in Africa for 15 years, and the thing they said that they found most offensive when they came back was this. This is the toilet roll aisle in a supermarket. In most Western supermarkets, you have a whole row of different toilet rolls. It's just crazy, isn't it? It's ridiculous. That's... Yeah, yeah, the cheap stuff is... Um, you know, so there's something that the gospel has to say about our culture. And so for us as Christians, when we start to live generously and justly, that is transformative in our culture. We, make, we, are, our, we are ambassadors to our culture. And so understanding how to live financially is a really important issue for us as Christians in our culture. Thirdly, we must talk about money, money, uh, because it's an issue that challenges our culture of control. Uh, we live in an age where we expect to control pretty much everything. You know, climate control in our cars, next day delivery on everything, perhaps the same day delivery on certain things. 24-7 services everything, customizing everything to suit my preferences. We want to be in charge, don't we? That's our culture. And going back to the story of the rich young ruler who decided not to follow Jesus, I think, my hunch, this is not in the text, this is my hunch, my hunch is it was an issue of control. And Jesus was really after this guy's obedience, because that's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, to be obedient. And actually, money was the issue. Money was the, the anvil, the, the focus of that conversation. But I think it was really about control, probably. Um, but Jesus wants our obedience, and money is a, our, our approach to finances as a tool for that. Fourthly, we've got to talk about money, because it's a matter of personal witness. We're going to come to a passage in 2 Corinthians in a minute. Um, just so I'm getting to the Bible, just in case anyone's worrying. Um, and in this passage in 2 Corinthians, we're going to get to chapter 8. But before we get to chapter 8, we read at least five different big themes. Here they are. We're to be ministers of the new covenant. Ministers of the gospel. We, we're to live in the light of the gospel. We're to be, we have a ministry of reconciliation. We're to be ambassadors for Christ. 
We're to be the dwelling place, the temple of God on earth. That's all about our missional mandate, to be the people living as God's people, God's ambassadors, God's ministers in this world. So Paul sets out this whole theme of living missionally, and then he comes to money, and he spends two chapters on money out of a I think it's 15 or 16 chapter books. It's, it's, it's a big percentage, but this is the background. He's talking about mission. So money is a matter of personal witness. Uh, Jesus wants to be generous. All of this requires us to be generous people, to be generous with our time, our gifts, our talents, our finance. All of that is important to be a, to be a generous people. We're not going to be missional if we're not generous. And to be generous, God wants to have a look at our money. Fifth thing... Um, <clears throat> about talking about money is that it's an issue that tests and trains our hearts. I guess this is an aspect of discipleship, really, but as we've said, it's not just about money, it's about time, talents, the whole of life, obedience. But Jesus does rather focus in on money as a bit of a test case. Uh, he says in Luke 16:10, only the person who is faithful with money can be trusted with spiritual riches. Only the person who's faithful with money can be trusted with spiritual riches. For Jesus, our approach to finance is a discipleship issue that, that shows whether we're stewards and whether he can trust with other stuff, more important stuff. He, Jesus says, where your money is, there your heart is. So for Jesus, it was quite a big issue. For, and uh, so it, it's an issue that tests and trains our hearts. Number six, it's an issue that tests and trains our trust in God. Tithing, this will be the only mention of tithing in this talk, I think. Tithing is an act of trust. It says it all belongs to God anyway. So as a faith response to his generosity, I'm going to give back 10% of all that I get. I'm going to trust him that 90% will be enough. And by doing that, generations of Christians have discovered you can't outgive God. <laughs> you can't outgenerous God. God is more generous, more giving than we can ever be. And in the passage we're about to read, we're going to see that one church gave out of their poverty and discovered God's, God's abundance. So this is not a matter of having lots either. It's a matter of faith in God, trust in God, knowing that as we give to God, we will discover God's abundance. And the seventh thing I want to say, the seventh reason why we must talk about money, is it's an issue for our church and our mandate. When we look at the beginning of the church in the book of Acts, we see that as, as soon as they were formed, money was an issue they got right into. So Acts 2, church has just been formed, we, what do we read about in Acts 2, about their approach to money and possessions? They shared everything. So that's Acts 2. Acts 5, interesting little story in Acts 5, story for another day probably, Ananias and Sapphira. Don't quite know what was going on there, but, but it was a big deal. And it, the, why it made its way into the, into the story that's been passed down to us is an interesting question too. Acts 6, caring for widows. The, caring, the, the care, the feeding of widows wasn't going right, so they sorted it out. And again, that's quite a major story. So in the first five or six chapters of the story of the early church, three of them talk about finance. There's a focus there. It's a big deal for them. So it's true for all churches. It's particularly true for us. We have a mandate as a church 
to be a generous church, to be a church that's seeking the good of our city, uh, to give to the poor, to spread the gospel, to bless the nations. I mean, all that's true probably for every church, but we have a particular mandate, um, prophetic mandate. I don't know if you, how many of you were here during the turning encounters the, the week when Yinka prophesied over us as a church. So quite a few of you. He had a word for us as a church. He said, it, this is the short version. <laughs> he said, you're called to transform the nation. You're called to sow out sons and daughters, trusting that what you give, God will give back. You're called to pour out. You'll always have more than enough for yourselves. It will never run dry. This is a call to generosity. And it underlined the word. That's, that's, a, that's a prophetic mandate that God has had over us as a church since we were planted in in the mid-80s. It's, it's part of our reason is to be a, a church that sends, trains and sends people to the nation. We can't do that without a generous culture. And it's not just about money. As Yinka said, it's about planting out people. So there's this thing of generosity and finance is a big deal for God and it's a big deal for us. So that's seven reasons why we need to talk about money. So we're going to talk about it. If you could turn with me to 2 Corinthians 8, please. And we're going to read the first nine verses. 2 Corinthians 8. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overwhelming joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. Uh, Paul's taking an offering for the church in Jerusalem that's having a famine. There's a, we'll come back to that in a minute, but that's what's going on there. They did not, verse 5, they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. Just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness and in love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich." So Paul's arranging his offering, and it pops up quite a few times actually in uh, different letters. Different, you know, I think it's at least three different letters that you see reference to this famine relief offering. Again, it's a big deal for Paul, and it's a big deal firstly because it, you know, the church in Jerusalem is in need; they're in poverty, in famine, so there's a need. But it also for Paul says something about the interdependence of the church. It's important that when one part is suffering, another part responds. Um, we're interdependent with church, other churches. And it also says something about God's heart for the gospel that Jewish and Gentile believers were together part of God's family. The church in Jerusalem was primarily Jewish believers. The church in Corinth was primarily Gentile. But you know, there's, a, there's a connection there. Paul's saying it's important that we stand together in this thing. So it's more than just we need a bit of money. There's something, the heart of the gospel in this offering. So it's a big deal for Paul. 
the tone, we read, I mean, we could have read on to the end of chapter 9, because it's one continuous thing, really, but we had to sort of stop somewhere. The whole tone of this chapter 8 to 9 is quite intriguing. It's, it's not a rebuke, but it's an encouragement. But I'd say it's a cheeky encouragement. Paul's saying, hey, you know, it's all about the grace of God, but come on, you need to play your part. It's, there's a bit of, a little bit of negotiation going on there. He also compares the Greek church here in, um, in this bit we just read. He's comparing the Greek Corinthian church to the Macedonian church. Anyone who knows their history knows they were long-term rivals, Greek, Greece and Macedonia. And Paul's playing on that rival, that political rivalry to say, come on, are you going to play your part? Look what those guys have done. So it's a bit cheeky, but it's, it's all here in the text. So... And the other thing that comes out of what we've read so far, and if you read on, was it's about the grace of God. There's a strong emphasis. The word grace of God, the concept of the grace of God comes up, I think it's eight times in these two chapters. It's, it's all about the grace of God. And that's really where we're going to start. Um, I need to say I've nicked these headings from, a, from, the, from the preacher in Jimmy's church. Went to, we went down to see Jimmy in Portsmouth earlier in the year, and he did a great talk on this passage. So I've nicked his headings unashamedly. So, um, so firstly, we've had that. Generosity flows from grace. And here's, here's all the references to grace in these, two, in these two chapters. One of the most famous um, quotes is this thing here God is able to make all grace abound in you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times you may abound in every good work and we sometimes read that as a sort of nice spiritual truth it's about it's in a chat it's in a passage about money so it's about money too and specifically it is about other things as well and Paul doesn't start in 8 1 with the Macedonians the size of the Macedonians' gift or their huge generosity. But he starts with the grace of God. Now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given. That's where he starts. It's about the grace of God. Generosity is an outflow of grace, first and foremost. What is grace? Ruth and I often have this conversation about what is, what is grace. Grace, quite simply, is, is getting what you don't deserve. There's lots of definitions, but grace is getting what you don't deserve. Um, it, grace says it's not about you, your performance, or about what you do, but it's about what God does. It's an outflow of grace. Um, this bucket is being quite generous. This is a bucket, by the way. You probably can't see it on the screen there. This bucket is being pretty generous with its water. But is that to do with how wonderful the bucket is or something else? It's not to do with the bucket, really, is it? It's to do with the inflow into the bucket. And that's the point about us. We are generous because of God's grace. It's not something we have to sort of make happen or you know, work ourselves up to. We're supposed to be a generous people because God is pouring his love and his generosity and his grace into us. And that generosity is not just about finance. It's about the whole of our lives. But Paul's talking here about finance. So we're supposed to be an overflowing people. And there's a myth around that says, it's my money, and it's determined by my circumstances. And the truth is, it's about God. It's all about God. It's all about his grace. 
Now, back in 1 Corinthians, which is kind of part one of this two-part letter to the same church, Paul says, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? You've you've only got anything, talents, money, gifts, because of God, because what he's put into you. Tim Keller commenting on this passage says, if we have money, power, and status today, which we do by and large in sort of global history, we're pretty wealthy, we're pretty powerful in our generation. If we have that, it's due to the century and place in which you were born, to your talents, capacities, and health, None of which you earned. None of which you earned. In all short, this is Tim Callisell, in short, all your resources are in the end the gift of God. So we need to, as Western people, we need to, we need to kind of recalibrate that it's not all about us and how impressive we are and how much earning potential we have and how educated we are, but it's about the grace of God pouring through our lives. And we start with grace. We don't start with comparison You know, social media has a bit of an issue, doesn't it? Social media is really all about comparing ourselves with others. You know, we post... I was talking to someone the other day. This is a friend of mine who's a Christian leader in a ministry I won't name. I said to him, oh, you seem to be quite busy. And he said, oh, yeah, I play the social media game. I post things to make it look like I'm busy. I mean, he spreads out what he's doing. He's, He's done it all, but he spreads it out. I thought, that is insincere, frankly. But it's a game. We, we, I'm sure when you're looking through p- pictures to post, you don't p- pick the worst picture of you, the picture having just got out of bed with your hair in a mess, do you, to put on social media, usually. You pick the best one, probably. There's something about the spirit of comparison in our age, and, um, but we need to keep focusing on the grace of God. The grace of God predisposes us to generosity. The guy, this Tim, Jimmy's pastor, who who preached through this passage a few months ago, said, the Christian who is not generous is resisting the flow of grace. The Christian who is not generous is resisting the flow of grace. If this is true, this bucket, if God's grace is constantly pouring into us, if we're not living in the overflow of that, that's the problem with us, the bucket. It's not a problem with God. It's a problem with us not living in overflowing, generous lives. Let's go back to Zacchaeus again. What happened with him? Something in him changed. The moment, it's, it, the way you read the story, the moment Zacchaeus became a Christian, some, a switch flicked in him. And he gave generously to the poor. He gave back where he'd stolen from people. He, he made right. There was a, that's the flow of grace. It doesn't even seem, we don't know what Jesus said around the table to him. It doesn't even seem that Jesus talked to him about money. But somehow Zacchaeus knew that this flow, there was something in the flow of grace. You know, people talk about becoming Christians and suddenly life-controlling habits are changed in them, even though no one's told them about that. I think it's the same with this thing. There's something of a generous, a generous gene, if I can call it that, that God puts in us when we become Christians and, and changes something. I was reading earlier in the week about John Newton, the famous slave trader, become Christian. John Newton's business wealth was founded on slavery. And yet he became a Christian and later in his life became an abolitionist. There was something about the flow of grace that God, God's relationship with John Newton changed his financial behavior. 
It changed something. He put his business interests aside for God's purposes. So generosity is not about how wealthy we are. It is about the grace of God working in us. That's the first thing to say from this passage. The second thing to say is that generosity leads to joy. If you look at verse 2... Verse 2 says, out of their most severe trial, this is the Macedonian churches, out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. There's something, there's a curious thing here about joy being sandwiched between extreme poverty and severe affliction. It's interesting, isn't it? There's something about joy that comes when we're generous, when we live generously. As I said a minute ago, objectively, we're not poor. I mean, some of us might be poor, but the majority of our culture, our society, is objectively not poor. Some of us, some of us are, and we will know people that are, that are. I suspect if Paul was here instead of me today, he'd be being a lot less nice than I'm being out of this comparison. He'd be saying, now, brothers and sisters in Oxford, we want you to know about the grace. You know, he'd, he'd, you know, he'd, be, he'd be going for it because um, this church was poor. And in affliction. And they gave out of their generosity. Um, there's a challenge here about wealth and poverty. And we don't need to be rich like this lottery winner. who might be going slightly insane. To be generous. Um, actually, I, I was reading as part of preparation. There's, a, there's an article in Time magazine a few years ago that said 75% of lottery winners end up being miserable. 70% of winners talk of the curse of the lottery. So it's not all about winning loads of money. There's something different. They're, these guys who've got loads of money talk about the curse of it. There's something about joy in God's economy that flows as we start to be generous. And it's not about having loads to give. Uh, we talked... There's another story, isn't there, of the widow's might. Jesus tells another story. If you're familiar with this story, there's two... People come to present their offering. One of them's got loads of money and gives a bit of it. One of them, the widow, has got virtually nothing and gives it all. And Jesus says, who's the most generous? Who's understood the, who's understood the heart of the kingdom? And going back to Luke 16, Jesus, to remind us, Jesus, said, Jesus says, only the person who's faithful with a little can be trusted with more. Only the person who can be faithful with money can be trusted with true spiritual riches. So God is looking for our faithfulness. Even if we are a student and we haven't got a lot to live on or we're out of work and we're living on benefit, God is looking for that, being faithful with little. Um, and so much more those of us that have got a job and a regular income. God is looking for this generosity of spirit. Generous, ge- so gener- generous giving leads to joy. Um, thirdly, Uh, If we look at, where is it, verse 8. Verse 8, I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. Paul says here that generosity reveals love. And the challenge in this verse is to let your love, the love that's in you, be proven true through your generosity generosity is an outworking of love isn't it if there's no love there's not going to be a lot of generosity but if there is love we should expect to see generosity as a outworking as an overflow as a symptom of that love 
So I'm married to Ruth here. If she says she loves me but refuses to share her stuff with me, <coughs> insists on having different cupboards in the kitchen or something or, or whatever, I, I'm going to be a little bit suspicious about her, uh, her declaration of love, aren't I? I think, yes, you don't want to share your stuff. What's really going on this? This is a barometer. Okay, what do barometers do? Measure the pressure. And they have these little weather symbols on. Barometers help us understand what's going on with the weather. The weather's a bit complicated, isn't it? A little bit hard to work out for most of us. Any meteorologists here? Most of us find weather a little bit... Particularly, and particularly in Britain, we like talking about it, so it's a, it's a big deal. This simple barometer helps us understand what's going on with the weather. It's a test of the weather. It's a, I'm sure weather's not that simplistic, but this single measurement helps us understand what's going on with something a bit more complicated. And I think that's what's going on here. Giving is a barometer. Our generous giving is a barometer of our love. It's not the only thing that's important, just that the barometer is not really important in itself. But, but our giving is a test. It's a barometer of our love, our hearts. Now that's true as we look at our own finances. If we uh, were to take time to look at our own finances and say, how generous are we being? It's a barometer. It's true as we look at our church finances. It's a barometer of people's hearts. In Ephesians 5, um, there's a little passage, and it talks about Christ loving the church and giving himself up for her. If you think of loving an institution as being a bit odd, then I want to suggest you've got an odd idea of church. Church is not an institution. Church is a people. It's a community. We are the church, and we know this stuff. We have to remind ourselves, don't we, because of the language in our society. We are the church, the community. And we're called to love each other. And we're called to love the community. And so in terms of church giving, our generosity as individuals is a barometer of our love. It's what Paul's saying here. He's talking about um, testing the sincerity of their love by comparing it to the earnestness. And he's talking about giving. He's saying, how much are you going to give to my offering? That's what Paul's saying in the passage here. So just a thought. Um, this talk is not really about giving to the church, but about the importance of money, talking about money as Christians. It's important that we talk about it and us living generously. But if the people of the church don't give to the church, no one will. We don't have any other source of funding. It's not like we're funded by the state or something. When I grew, I grew up in church and the offering basket used to go around each week and it provided a degree of accountability about whether we were everyone was contributing now we're into online giving it's all hidden in the background somewhere that that point of accountability has gone the point of mutual accountability that point of honesty together as a community just a thought so in this verse 8 paul is saying our generosity reveals our love including for the church because he's talking here about the church He's talking about their love for, the, for, the, for their, their brothers and sisters in another church that many of them haven't met. The fourth thing that comes out of this passage is something about imitating Christ. Now, we all know that every child loves to imitate their parent, don't they? I mean, here's just one example. You know, the internet is rich with pictures of children imitating their parents. Here's, here's one example. Um, verse 9 
back in the passage says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. We apologise that, due to a technical error, the last two minutes of this talk were not recorded. Andy has written a short series of blogs that summarise how he finished his talk. These are available on the blogs section of our website, oxford.occ.org.uk.